So this week we have been following the events of Holy Week through the Gospel of Matthew. And so it's appropriate as we worship on this Easter day to return to Matthew chapter 28. And I invite you to listen and to read along to this account of the first Easter several couple thousand years ago. Matthew writes this. He says, After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descending from heaven came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. For fear of him, the guards shook and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has been raised, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has been raised from the dead. And indeed, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him. This is my message for you. So they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And suddenly Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came to him and they took hold of his feet and they worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask this day that you would be with us, lead us, and may the hope of this day meet us all. No matter who we are or how we walk in here, may we see you. And may the truth of this day propel us from this place. We ask for this and pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. So just so that we're clear, just so there is no mistaking this in any way, what we are doing here today is more than just about family traditions and about rituals and about brunch or about lunch or about keeping people happy or about checking the box of church attendance till we get here next year. What we are doing here is that we are making an unbelievably bold claim. And that claim is that the account that we just read is not allegory, it's not fiction. It's not a story to make us feel better. It's not a myth. That this is truth. That a couple of thousand years ago, a carpenter's son who had no religious standing or respect was killed on a Roman cross, a terrible way to die. He was buried in a tomb, and three days later he rose again, and he is the Savior of all creation, and that of all cultures and of all times and of all nations and of all generations, this single event is the defining moment in human history. I don't want us to have any confusion about what it is that we are saying here today. Now, I'm aware that right now there are probably more than a couple of you who are going, come on, man. Come on. Like, you don't actually think that's true, right? I mean, we can just learn some lessons for this. We can learn some religious rules. We can get some good moral teaching. But come on. You might be sitting there going, I'm doing my part. I'm here. 
I've showed up, I'm smiling, I'm doing my thing, I might have rode a shuttle bus, I might not have been able to find parking, like whatever it is, I've been through stuff today to get here, but come on, seriously, now you need to do your part. You need to just preach a nice sermon, give me a nice thought, we're all going to go to lunch after this, come on. We know better than this, right? We know that this isn't what happened. Maybe a couple of thousand years ago people were looking for this or could be fooled more easily, but not us. Look at the knowledge we have that they didn't have. In our world today, we can do things like split the atom. They couldn't do that. They didn't understand how that worked. We could do things like we can pause live TV and rewind it to have an opinion about whether it really was a catch that the receiver made or not. And then we can tweet it out to the world from a device on our phone to let the world know our, our opinion about whether it was a catch or, and a fumble or just a drop ball and an incompletion. Come on! We have psychologists that have probed the depths of human psyche and of the human heart. We understand how things function and understand how science and psychology work. Come on! Seriously. I want you to know today that if that is the case, Matthew is writing to you. You don't have to put your intellect on hold to come to church. You don't have to put your intellect on hold as we encounter this story today. Matthew's not asking you to do that. And indeed, what I want to take a couple of minutes is, and to say is both from this text, but also from the lessons of history, why do we make this kind of claim? Why would we stand up here and say that this happened, that this is real, that this is historical, that this is actual? Why would we make this kind of claim? Well, first off, you can look at the textual evidence this year. You can see the evidence in the story that we just read. If somebody was making up this story, and I don't really know why you would make this story up, but if you were, for example, a conspiracy theorist going, you know, this didn't happen, it was all it was written down years later, and da-da-da, you wouldn't have written it this way if you're trying to convince anybody that what you're saying is true. And we have to be careful if we take this enlightened 21st century mindset and go, maybe they believed this before, but we don't think this stuff. Yes, they may not have known how to split the atom. Yes, they may not have known psychology. Yes, they may not have been able to pause live TV. But people 2,000 years ago, they understood death. They understood it probably better than any of us because they lived with it on a much more frequent basis than we do. We push it away, try to act young, seem young, look young wasn't an option at that time. These women are going to the tomb on this first Easter morning to prepare the body for burial. I doubt many of us here today even know what that really means, much less could we do it. They could do it because they were familiar with death. And people 2,000 years ago weren't looking around going, who's going to rise from the dead? I don't know. Who's it going to be next? Is it you? Is it you? It's like duck, duck, goose. Who's going to get called? And then we kind of see what happens. We have to be really careful to get off our intellectual high horse and act like people before us just sort of believe things like this, but we don't. Matthew's writing, knowing that people at his time knew that when someone died, they stayed dead. And Matthew is writing with the idea that when you first hear this, you're probably going to go, come on. Can we just agree he was a good teacher and taught some good moral lessons and stop there? But if it's true... I submit to you today, if it's historical, if it's accurate, if it's literal, well, it changes everything. It changes everything about how we live and the values we hold and the things that we hope in and how we understand life and even how we understand death. If this is more than just a story or a fable or a myth, it changes 
everything. And I want you to hear today that I, for one, believe it is true. Now, why would I say that? Well, if you were making this up, for example, you wouldn't have written this account. Matthew wouldn't have written this account with the kind of specificity that we see here. You would have written it kind of saying, well, there was this guy, and he lived, and he taught, and he was really loving, and he taught us about peace and all the other things we like to think that Jesus is about because it makes us feel better about who we are in our politically correct world. And then we kind of move on and say, and then he died, and then he rose again, and love triumphs and everything else, and all's all good. But Matthew writes it in a way where he says, no, I don't want you just to kind of hear that there was some guy, Jesus, who was crucified by some guys in Rome. I want you to hear, he says, that the governor of Rome at the time was a guy named Pilate. I want to center it in human history. I want you to know who it was that was in charge at this time, and I want you to be able to identify it. This was written about 35 or 40 years after the events of the crucifixion and resurrection. That's not one of the earliest gospels. The earliest gospel, Mark, was written even closer to the events. But still, when Matthew wrote this, there would have been people who were living still that were alive when these events took place that you could have gone and fact-checked this with. And if they weren't alive, their children almost definitely were. I love it when I see on the news that people say, uh, I saw this a couple of years ago, it was like on CNN, they had this feature story during Holy Week of um, uh, archaeological dig in Jerusalem, and they uncovered the name Pilate on something that they found in Jerusalem. And it was this saying where like, oh my gosh, maybe it was real. It's like, yes, it was real. If you're Matthew making this up, you don't make up a name 35 years later as the governor of Judea. Because it's really easy for someone to go, I never heard of that guy. I was there at the time, never heard of a guy named Pilate. And the story's blown. Matthew's going, I want you to investigate this. I want you to know when it's written. He gives us other details. He writes with great specificity. He says things in the gospel accounts that in in chapter 27 that while Jesus, after he's whipped and beaten, he's carrying his cross up to Golgotha to be crucified and that his body gives out of strength. Matthew writes that there was a man called out from the crowd and he picked up the cross with Jesus and helped him carry it the rest of his journey. Matthew didn't just say it's a guy. He said it's a guy named Simon. Not only does he give us his name, he says he's from a town called Cyrene. Well, we know where Cyrene is. It's just south and west of the Holy Land. It's in northern Africa. And it was a very small village at the time. Matthew's writing this in a way going, you can go and check this. Most likely there were people that probably weren't a lot of Simons running around in Cyrene at the time. Go and find out. Go and find out if anyone knows anything about this. Or maybe even more compelling is the fact that after Jesus dies on a cross, it says that they bring his body down. And it doesn't just say he was buried in a tomb somewhere. Matthew writes that he was buried in the tomb of a man named Joseph of Arimathea, who was a wealthy businessman and a Pharisee at a time. The Pharisees were the religious authorities of this day. There weren't many of them. This was written 35 years later. You could go and just kind of find out in Jerusalem, who were the Pharisees? Anybody ever heard of a guy named Joseph from Arimathea? No? Obviously, he's making this up. Matthew's writing this going, go talk to him. He was real. He was historic. If he's not alive, his children are alive. I guarantee you they probably heard a story if a dead guy walked out of their dad's tomb. Matthew is assuming that you won't believe this. He's assuming that we're going to be skeptical about it. And he writes this in a way saying, go and look. And friends, it's not just in the text that we see this, but even if that's not enough, think about the story of how this worked in history. The study of human behavior in history shows us the truth and and the belief that these people had and what literally took place. 
Because what happened is, is that after these events, uh, these, these original apostles, they spread out over the Roman Empire in different places at different times, talking about this story of Jesus who is the Savior, Jesus who was alive, Jesus who came back from the dead. Now, what did they gain from that? What did they gain from going out? Most of them were ostracized. They were alienated from their families. They were alienated from their friends. They were hunted down. They were arrested. They were beaten. They were jailed. And many of them were killed for this proclamation. And what did they get from it? Nothing. They weren't copywriting this. They weren't selling it as a story. They got no money from it. They got no fame. Human beings don't do this. There's why there's not another account like this in history of people going around all proclaiming a truth in different places at different times, willing to even give up their lives for it. We know this. Our, 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 our systems and our world tell us that human beings don't do this. Take, for example, the economic principles that drive our country, that drive so much of the world, the theories of capitalism. Well, capitalism, when you boil it down, basically says people will act in their own interests when push comes to shove. And they'll do that more often than not. Now, we don't like to talk about it that way because we have like fancier words that make it sound better. But in the end, that's what Adam Smith was writing about. In the end, you can count on the fact and actually build an economic system around the fact that people will look after themselves when push comes to shove. These people got nothing, nothing from going out and proclaiming this message. Nothing from saying that it's literally true. And yet in history, we don't find evidence that one of them ever recanted it. And not they were in some big mass group think thing where there was social pressure. Many of them died alone, apart from all the others. Not one of them recanted it. There's a reason there's not another story like this in history, because these things don't happen. I want to submit to you today that this is real. As mind-blowing and miraculous as it seems that this happened, that Jesus is alive, that a man 2,000 years ago walked out of a tomb alive as the savior of creation. And it changes everything about how we live and how we understand that life works. Now, we might sit here today and say, well, what does it change? Well, you got to come back in the weeks ahead. That's, that's what church is, is figuring that out. That's what we're going to do over the next 52 years. That's why we do small groups. That's why we do Bible studies. That's why It's not to teach rules. That's not what the church is about. The church is not a rule-teaching organization. We forget that sometimes. But we are about investigating what does it mean to live in hope? What does it mean to be Easter people, resurrection people? That's what we do all the time. But I do want to suggest to you one thing today. One thing that it can change to understand that Easter is real. And it's the first instructions that are given in this passage. The first thing that Jesus says what a resurrection-centered life looks like. You actually hear this, this thought twice. Once from the angel and second from Jesus himself. And the thing that it changes immediately is this. The women hear this teaching and phrase, do not be afraid. 
The first thing that they hear that Easter is about is living a life where we do not need to be afraid anymore. Now, it's natural that they would have been afraid in this moment, right? We read about the angel coming down, and I kind of love Matthew's account, kind of in just, it's in your face, right? There's an earthquake, and move the stone away, and the angel plops himself on the stone while the passed out guards are there, kind of shaking in fear, and the angel just sits there. I love how Matthew writes, and he sat on it. He moved the stone, and he sat on it. It's like, I just did that. <laughs> that just happened, and I did that. He just sits there. And so it would be natural when the women see this that they're going to be afraid. The professional soldiers are afraid and not able to move. But the angel says to them, do, do not be afraid. We see this again when they encounter Jesus. And again, these women, you have to understand that they are um, uh, there in a moment when they are now talking to and touching a person who three days ago they saw die. That could be a moment of high anxiety, right? And yet they're there, and Jesus' first instructions to them are, don't be afraid. And then, and this is what I want us to think about. Then he says, but go to my brothers and tell them to go to Galilee. And it's there that they will see me. Now, to paint this picture and to be sure we're accurate, as a guy, I have to admit that this is true. We need to understand What's happened is, is that after Jesus' crucifixion, the women have come to the tomb. They're walking around in public. They're um, uh, there to prepare the body. They're doing the things they're supposed to do. Where are the guys? They're hiding. They're hiding in a room together. And the reason they're hiding is because they know that they could be hunted down and killed just as they saw their leader was killed three days ago. They also have just seen their lives fall apart of what they had based things on. So they are hiding, and Jesus says to the women, don't be afraid, but go tell my brothers that it's time to move, that it's time for them to go to Galilee, which is hours and hours and hours to the north. You're going to have to walk around in public. You're going to have to come out of, the, of, of this room. You're going to have to hold your head high. It is time for you to get out and start moving. You don't need to be afraid anymore. And I wonder this morning if there's anyone here that might need to hear that message. I wonder if there's anyone here that deals with a certain amount of worry about the future. A certain amount of concern, trepidation, anxiety, whatever word you want to use. What does that look like for you? Where is that present in your life? We all got it. Psychologists tell us that it drives more of our behavior than we care to think about. Where is fear and worry about what tomorrow might bring a part of your life? Maybe it's about when this economy is going to change and how your investments need to look in that so that you can be protected. Maybe it's about if you're going to get the right job that you've been hoping for. Maybe it's about are you ever going to get a promotion. Maybe it's about are you ever going to be in a certain relationship. Maybe it's about are you going to be hurt in this relationship like you have been in the past and is it time to open up or is it time to keep protecting yourself? Maybe it's about if a pregnancy test is ever going to look different than what you've seen for years and years and years. Maybe it's about if you have enough resources. Maybe it's about the decisions that your growing children are going to make that you realize that you can't control them anymore. And in fact, the advice that you give seems to push them in the other direction. Maybe it's about wondering if someone you love is going to be able to battle an addiction. Maybe it is about if you can battle it yourself this time. What is it that keeps you up, that you think about, that causes you worry 
or anxiety as you think about the uncertainty of what is to come and what would it mean for the first lesson of Easter to ring clear in your mind and in your heart, you don't need to be afraid. Not anymore. What causes us worry is what feels like a lack of control. And if the last year has taught me anything in my own life, it is about how little we can control, even when we think we can control a great deal. I don't know about you, but I'm a planner. I like to strategize. I like to have lists. I like to cross things off the list when they're done. I feel a sense of accomplishment in that. I like for our family to have a sense of what we're going to do. I kind of plan out vacations so that we know what we want to do when we're there. I like for us to do that as a church. I like for us to have goals. I like for us to have plans of how we're going to make those goals. I like for us to hold each other accountable for whether we're going to meet those goals. I think that that is an important way of living and of doing things because it makes me feel certain. But I'm also aware of the limits of that. If you had come to me one year ago at Easter, Easter of 2017, and used some pretty defining words this year in my life, I wouldn't have known what you meant. Three words. Idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. Idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, three words that if you had come to me last year and was like, I don't know what that is. I don't, is that a thing? I don't know what that is. But nine months ago, my father was diagnosed with it, and this past week, we buried him. He died from it. Three words that last year I had not heard of or understood before, that last Easter I didn't know existed, have changed the course of my life this year. Now, that didn't mean that I'm going to stop strategizing and planning and trying to get prepared for things. But it would be tempting for me, maybe even possible for me, to have some anxiety about what that means for the future. I wonder what I'm going to learn this time next year that I don't know today about myself, about our world, about our nation, about people I care about, about people I love. There might be some of you right now who are going, I don't want to talk about this, especially at Easter. We're supposed to be happy. Why are you talking about this? And, and that place of uncertainty or anxiety that you feel, that's what Jesus is speaking to at Easter. Easter's not a time for pastels and running away from it and acting nice for a few hours. It's about hearing the words of the Lord saying, this is real and you don't need to be afraid anymore. And the reason we don't need to be afraid is because as we gaze into the future, what Jesus says to the disciples is, I'm going ahead of you. The future is where I am. I'm not sending you out there on your own. I'm in Galilee. I am going ahead of you. And as you get out of your fear, and as you leave the room, and as you begin traveling in public, yes, you might see things and hear things and face difficulties, but I am there going ahead of you. And as you go to Galilee, he says, it's there that you will see me, that you and I will see the Lord. I'm aware of the fact that my family went through this journey during Holy Week. And there was significance in that for me. There was significance in the fact that this was a time, like we see at Holy Week, where there was pain, and there was loss, and there was death, and there were tombs, and there was difficulty, and there was mourning, and there was crying. And that week has been, this, this week has been a, a week where every day I've experienced some of that. 
But my dad's story and our story is not just a journey of pain and crucifixion and death and loss. Because as we move forward on this path that we didn't necessarily want to go on, I can tell you today that I've seen the Lord. I've seen the Lord. And I haven't walked this path by myself. I've seen the Lord. And the fact that my father went from someone who was frightened of what his own mortality meant to somebody who was at peace with what dying meant for him as he understood and would encounter a God of love and grace who knew him by name. And when he breathed his last breath, he wasn't scared of what lay beyond. In fact, he was curious about what it would be like. I've seen the Lord. I've seen the Lord and family coming together and gathering around his bed as he was coming to the end. And if you've been here before, you know that my family of origin story is not a Disney movie. It's a story that involved loss and betrayal and pain and heartache and conflict and fighting. And my guess is my family doesn't look a whole lot different maybe from yours. But we, over the course of the last months, have seen peace and reconciliation and love that has triumphed over all the things that we've walked through. And as we gathered around that, my dad, at the end, we gathered in love. And he was surrounded by that. I've seen the Lord. And I saw my dad, and I saw the Lord in a text that I received from my dad, the last text I ever received from him. He sent it out two days before he died. It was to me... It was to his five boys, to me, to my two younger brothers, and to my two younger stepbrothers. And in this text that he wrote to the five of us, he said, Today marks the four-week anniversary of when I went under hospice care. One month of hospice care. Best month of my life. Thank you, he wrote at the end. Now, by my mathematical calculations, and you got to understand, anytime math and I collide in the same sentence, there's a good chance I'm wrong about this. But if my calculations are right, my dad lived 858 months. But it was the last month, best month, best month of my life. And it was the only one of the 858 where he knew he was actively dying. I've seen the Lord. And it doesn't come without scars, and it doesn't come without heartache, and it doesn't come without loss, but I've seen the Lord. Friends, as you journey forward from this place, this next year in our life and in your life will hold all kinds of things that as we sit here today, you can't imagine. Some of them will be so beautiful and wonderful, they will steal your breath, and you will treasure them forever. And we give thanks for that. But some of them may be hard and difficult and painful. But as we look into a future together, may we hear the words of Jesus to us. You don't need to be afraid. Because I go before you. And as you journey from this place... You will see me, the triumphant one whom death could not contain. And that fact changes everything. Hallelujah. Amen.
Let's pray. Lord, we ask this day that this truth would reign in our minds and in our hearts. That we would journey from this place with head held high. Knowing that you go before us. Knowing that we will not journey alone. May we too see the Lord and be filled. Amen.